Now this morning we want to uh, kind of interrupt our series. We've been uh, doing a series of messages out of Colossians on discipleship, but on this particular Sunday we'll want to focus on what God has to say, how God views the preborn. So I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and we're going to read verses 13 through verse 18. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13. Uh, The words are up on the screen. You can open it up in your Bibles. But let's stand together in honor of the Word of God, and you follow along as I read this uh, very significant passage, and we get a glimpse of how God views the preborn. <clears throat> For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together. In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Psalmist, it's sharing from his heart how God values, how God loves the preborn. Let us pray. Father in heaven, open our hearts and our minds to your word today. Help us as we live in a culture of death to learn how to celebrate life and to understand that you are the life giver. We praise and thank you for the privilege that we have to stand tall for you and to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, these precious preborn children. Lord, we love you. We commit this time to you. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Today, my life began. My parents do not know yet. I am as small as a seed of an apple, a little sprout. Probably my sex and color of eyes is settled. The 14th day. Some think I'm not, some think I am not a real person yet. I am not a loaf of bread, but I am a weak crumb. On the 18th day, my mouth is just beginning to open now. Just think, in a year or so, I shall be laughing and later talking. I know what my first word will be, mama. The 20th day, my heart began to beat today all by itself. From now on, it shall gently beat 
for the rest of my life without ever stopping. The 28th day. I'm growing a bit every day. My arms and legs are beginning to take shape. Someday I shall climb up and hug my mama and daddy. The 38th day of pregnancy. Tiny fingers are beginning to form on my hands. Funny how small they are. I'll be able to stroke my mother's hair with them. The 46th day. Today the doctor told my mom that I am living under her heart. Oh, how happy she must be. Are you happy, mommy? 51st day. My parents are probably thinking about a name for me. I'm getting to be big already. 66th day of the pregnancy. My hair is growing. It is smooth and bright and shiny. I wonder what kind of hair my mama has. 69th day. I'm just about able to see. It's dark around me. When mom brings me into the world, it will be full of sunshine and flowers. But what I want more than anything else is to see my mother. The 80th day. I wonder if mom hears the whispering of my heart. Some children are born a little sick, but my heart is healthy and strong. It beats so evenly. Thump, 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 thump. You have a healthy baby, mommy. On the 84th day of the pregnancy, today my mother killed me. Abortion is one of the great tragedies of our world today. In fact, just this past year, according to the Planned Parenthood, almost 400 abortions were performed by that organization. Many have called it a dirty word in America. Others have called the abortion situation the silent holocaust. <clears throat> Others have called it a post-conceptive fertility control. Others call it big business. Some call it a voluntary miscarriage in every woman's right. Some call it murder, while some professing Christians exude an attitude of apathy and complacency. Uh, it's really none of my business. If you're listening to our culture today, everybody seems to have an opinion about abortion. And in the midst of all the rhetoric that we hear, the voice of God has been silenced. This morning, we want to understand how God views the preborn. Let me remind let me remind you that even the worst criminal, the rapist, the murderer, has the right to a defense lawyer, a judge, a jury, due process of law, but not the innocent preborn child. Abortion means no judge, no jury, no trial, no appeal, no stay of execution. The scriptures challenge us in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. 
for the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Speak up and defend. You see, every preborn child has been formed in the image of God. They are much too valuable to be carelessly discarded and disposed of, disposed of in today's disposable and valueless society. I believe this is God's call for every single one of us in the year 2024. Psalm 139 provides us with a key to understanding how God views the nature and the status of a preborn child. Psalm 139 has been called by some the crown of all the Psalms. The Old Testament theologian Austerly writes, quote, for the conceptions regarding the divine nature, the omniscience and omnipresence of God, this Psalm stands out as the greatest gem in the Psalter. Unquote. It easily divides into, six, uh, cluster, into four clusters of six verses each. And the theme and the reoccurring emphasis throughout the psalm is the transcendence of God. In fact, as you read this psalm, in 24 verses, God admit, is mentioned directly six times, indirectly 36 times, and 30 times he is referred to by pronoun. Now, let me give you a quick overview of this psalm. You see, if we are to understand the value of mankind, the value of the preborn, we must first of all have a proper concept of God. If we have a low view of God, we will also have a low view of mankind. First of all, in this passage of Scripture, the first six verses we discover that God is all-knowing. Notice the text, he searches me. You could translate it this way, he makes a minute investigation of me. He knows me, he perceives my thoughts. He discerns my going out and my lying down. His hand is upon me. There is no place where the psalmist goes where God is not present. God is all-knowing, he knows everything about us. There is not a single thing that happens to us that catches God off guard. Not only is God all-knowing, he is ever-present. In Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, God is with us. Where we go, he goes. The atheist says, where is God? And the Christian counters by saying, where is God not? He is ever-present. We can never escape his presence. When we think we can hide from God, he is right by our side. We can never escape the presence of the living God. Number three, God is all-powerful. In chapter 139, 13 to 18, he fashions us and he makes us uniquely in his image. We are fearfully and intricately, wonderfully made. And this is the section that we want to look at more carefully in just a few minutes. And then fourthly, God is full of righteousness. He is a righteous God. 
in Psalm 139, 19 to 24. It's interesting, as the psalmist focuses on the transcendence of God, there is a relationship that also exists between God and his creation, and in this case, David the psalmist. Fifty times David is referred to in these 24 verses. Forty-six times personal pronouns such as I, me, my are incorporated. In this psalm, man and God come together. The psalmist comes to know God in a very deep and a very personal way. And once we understand who God is and how great and mighty and powerful he is, we will also have a new and better and clearer understanding of how valuable man is who is made in the very image of God. The late Dr. John R.W. Stott wrote an excellent article in Christianity Today several years ago defending biblically that human life begins at the moment of conception rather than at birth and is therefore to be considered sacred and unique as made in the image of God. I had the privilege of sitting under Dr. Stott when I was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was basically a mentor for me. I spent time with him. I understood how much he loved God and how much he loved the Word of God and how he studied the scriptures and he searched the scriptures. And so as I reflect on what he wrote, uh, I've come to the conclusion that he is absolutely correct when he says that life begins at conception. Doesn't begin when the baby is born, it's begin, it begins the moment that baby is conceived. I want you to notice three points. Number one, the testimony of creation. You see this in verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist is here affirming that the preborn baby is a unique being created by God, the unique possession of Almighty God. And I want you to note the terminology that the psalmist uses. God, as the potter, created his inmost being. The Hebrew is literally his kidneys. As a weaver, God knit him together with skill and precision. This was also the message that Jeremiah proclaimed in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The suffering Job testified in Job 10, 8 to 12. Your hands shaped me and made me. You molded me like clay. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit together with bones and sinews. You give me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. Verse 15 Notice the words woven together. That phrase is descriptive of the complex patterns and colors of a skillful weaver. 
Also in verse 15, the phrase, the depths of the earth, is a metaphor for the deepest concealment or hiddenness of the womb. Stott makes this observation, quote, although the Bible makes no claim to be a textbook of embryology, here's a plain affirmation that the growth of the fetus in the womb is neither haphazard nor automatic, but a divine work of creative skill, unquote. The psalmist here is affirming very specifically that the fetus is not a lump of jelly or a blob of tissue or a growth in a mother's body that can be removed as readily as her tonsils or appendix. The fetus is not a potential human being, but a human being with incredible potential. a very real sense. The fetus is not an it. It is a real he or a real she, a real baby. Stott further points out that, quote, there is no decisive moment of humanization subsequent to conception. Whether implantation, that is, the masses of cells when they attach themselves to the wall of the uterus, or a quickening when the mother first feels the fetus move, or viability when the preborn fetus is unable to is able to exist outside the womb, or birth when the child takes its first independent breath. All these are stages in the continuous process by which an individual human life is developing into a mature human personhood. From fusion onward, the fetus is a preborn child. Verse 16 is further amplification. Notice, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. And look at the next statement. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It's amazing. Even before we are born, God has ordained the number of days we're going to live. He values us incredibly. The Hebrew is saying that the embryonic members, the unformed body was likewise planned and known before the many stages of their day-by-day development. You could paraphrase verse 16 this way, quote, my bony skeleton was not hid from you when I was made in the womb, and my tendons, nerves, arteries, veins were being woven together beyond the power of human observation. Your eyes did see me as an embryo rolled and folded together, and in your book all were written what days they should be fashioned, and not one among them was yet made, unquote. It's very clear that the psalmist is telling us very simply that human life begins at conception. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself demonstrates this point without question. What was the message that the angel gave to Joseph when he was informed of Mary's pregnancy? 
In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, we read, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. From the very moment Mary conceived, God entered human life. From conception to death and glorious resurrection, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Mary did not carry an it or a divine blob of tissue. She carried Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God. He was the God-man in her at her conception. He did not become the God-man subsequently at birth or three days thereafter. Therefore, Psalm 139 and verse 10 is a very strong affirmation of our prenatal fashioning by God. He values us. Just think about this. He values us when we were yet embryos in the womb of our mothers. He has plans for us, and those plans begin when we are first conceived. Not only do we want to look at <clears throat> the testimony of creation in this psalm, but also I want to point to you the principle of continuity. And you see this in the very first 16 verses. As we continue looking at this psalm, we discover that the psalmist not only has a new appreciation for the transcendence of God, but as he surveys his life, he considers his past in verses 1 and 2, his present in verses 2 and 6, his future prospect in verses 7 to 12, and his life before birth in verses 13 to 16. Interestingly, in all four stages, David refers to himself as I. Stott's summary statement is worth repeating. He, that is, David who is writing as a full-grown man, has the same personal identity as the fetus in his mother's womb. He affirms a direct continuity between his antenatal and postnatal being. Therefore, there is a cohesiveness an uninterrupted connection between a time a person is conceived and when he is born, lives a full life, and then ultimately dies. God's steadfast love, his awesome view of human life, is precious, is what gives the psalmist this sense of connectedness to the living God in all stages of his life. Even when he was an embryo, he was connected to God. When he is birthed, he is connected to God. When he lives, he is connected to God. When he dies, there is that same connection. It is this connectedness that we have to God from the moment of conception that makes every human life valuable, no matter what the circumstances surrounding the conception may be. Morris Baring tells the story of one doctor who asked another doctor about the termination of a pregnancy. He wanted the other doctor's opinion. And he described what was happening. The father was syphilitic. The mother, tuberculosis. 
Of the four children born, the first was blind, the second died, the third was deaf and dumb, and the fourth also had tuberculosis. What would you have done with that fourth child? Doctor said, I would have ended the pregnancy. Then responded the other doctor, you would have murdered Beethoven. Then lastly, I want you to look at the truth about conception, and I want you to turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and I want you to look specifically at verses 5 through 7. Notice, Surely I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David is affirming in this particular passage that his nature, his physical nature, has been tainted with sin from the moment of conception onward. The implication is that our spiritual, rational, and moral capacities are already present in the human fetus. The sin that David committed with Bathsheba, this sin he traces now to his development before birth, who is beginning in his mother's womb, to the very moment of conception, he says, surely I have been a sinner since my mother conceived me. He is saying in verse 6 that in his fetal state, the moral law of God was present with him. And those descriptive phrases, inner parts, inner place, do not describe David's body, but rather modify his mother's womb. Those phrases literally can be translated the uncovered overparts or the bottled up place, words which describe a mother's womb rather than his own body. And what David is saying is that God's law was inscribed within him. The wisdom of knowing right from wrong was implanted in his being in the closed up chambers of his mother's womb. And that being the case, the moral spiritual facility of man does not originate simultaneously, does originate simultaneously at conception and therefore to abort a fetus is to kill a unique human being designed by God himself. God has described, inscribed his life in the life of the unborn. This was also Jeremiah's view of the preborn. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart and appointed you to be a prophet of the nations. God views the preborn as sacred and holy, not to be tampered with. What are the alternatives to abortion? Isaiah 44, verse 24 says, This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things. And again in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, 19, and 20. 
See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. Underscore that in chartreuse. The Lord is your life. Instead of taking away life casually, we must choose to protect life at all costs. Now, how can the church be redemptive in a culture of death? Just going to give you a couple of uh, very brief overviews. Number one, we can be proactive. Uh, We need to be a place that is full of caring people who will stand by a woman who doesn't know how she will cope with another pregnancy and is considering aborting a baby that God has given to her and her husband. Caring people can come around such an individual. They can do housework, they can do babysitting, they can do other routine jobs that overwhelm a woman who becomes pregnant but just doesn't know how she can handle another newborn. So we can be proactive. We can also be resourceful. We need to educate ourselves so that we are aware of Christian agencies such as the Thrive Medical Clinic that minister to unwed mothers and counsel women who have gone through the trauma of rape, incest, and under the sexual abuse. We need to be aware of the pro-life network here in Traverse City. We need to learn how to be resourceful. look for ways in which we can support those that are struggling whether or not to keep their unborn baby, preborn baby. Number three, we can be supportive. We can become a shoulder for a distressed girl to lean on who's become pregnant and needs support. See a loving attitude. A loving attitude pattern after the grace of God will help us reach out to young girls, encouraging them to keep their babies rather than to destroy their babies. We need to help women deal with the emotional scars they're experiencing and help them actualize the forgiveness of a loving God. Number four, we need to be expressive. When we see legislation that is contrary to our value of the sanctity of human life, we need to write letters to our congressmen. We need to let government officials know that we choose life. We stand for life. Number five, we need to be participative. Many of you have participated in the annual Right to Life March here in Traverse City. Others of you have stood by silently and prayed. However God leads you, God may lead us all in different ways. That's okay. But participate in these opportunities. Above all, to pray for a return to the sanctity of human life in our communities. And then, number six, we need to be authentic. 
More than anything else, we need to practice in our private lives what we declare publicly. We must model sexual purity personally. This means we need to teach abstinence to our young people. It means that we keep our minds pure and holy and clothe ourselves every day with the full armor of God. The biggest lie out there is that there is safe sex. Anything outside the realm of God does not please him. What about those that have aborted their babies? <laughs> Let me tell you, there's great hope for you. Great hope. Restoration begins by admitting that, first of all, you were wrong to yourselves and to your preborn child and to God. Turn with me for just a minute over to Psalm 32. Where David in that particular psalm is miserable until he admits that what he did was wrong. Psalm 32, look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as the heat of the summer. When we do things that we know are wrong, the, the heavy hand of God is on us. But notice in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and underline it in chartreuse, you forgave. Praise Jesus. There is forgiveness Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. It can be gloriously forgiven. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives. He longs to forgive. And by confessing that particular sin, the taking of a preborn life, who has great potential, you could have peace and rest instead of distress and guilt. Romans 5, 1 puts it this way, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If God forgives you, if he does, and he does, there's no need to keep on punishing yourself because of your past. Christ has taken that punishment on the cross for you. And don't let Satan bring up that which God has forgiven. He's wiped it away. Praise Jesus. Goodness sakes. We can experience forgiveness and hope and healing. There is hope for those that unfortunately have chosen abortion. But I can tell you there are countless hundreds of women today that will testify today that when they confess, they experience that flood of the forgiveness of God and he forgave them and he gave them a brand new life. A life that is full of his grace. My friends, God values the preborn.
He values us when we are still in our mother's womb. He ordains the number of our days while we are in our mother's womb. And he is preparing us. He has a plan for every single life. Every little child that is conceived, God has a plan that life. Let's stand together, shall we please, for closing prayer. <laughs> Father in heaven, we love you this morning. And on this sanctity of human life, Sunday, we've tried to be very true to your word. Your word gives us life. It gives us light. It helps us to know how to live. And I want to thank you for so many here at East Bay who understand how much you value the preborn. And Lord, we would come against this onslaught that is out there in the world where life is disposable and easily discarded. Lord, you're the giver of life. We take a look at what's happening in Europe now with euthanasia. We don't value the preborn. We don't value the aged. We somehow have gotten our focus off you. We've listened to all the other rhetoric. Lord, help us to get tuned into you and to walk in obedience to you and to your word and to offer hope and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha, lo he comes. Have a great day. In Jesus.